I'm telling you, George, they see the weakness of the government. They feel at once their own poverty compared to the opulent. Their creed is that the property of the United States has been protected from the confiscations of Britain by the joint exertions of all men. And therefore, property should be known as common to all men. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's uh, this podcast. And you know what we do here? History, philosophy, some theology. Today we're going to do a lot of history. And basically we're trying to make sense of the many undulations out there in the world. And a lot of it we uh, try to make sense of using our experience in foreign cultures at First Things Foundation. Try to bring in some of what we're learning. Today we're going to do that big time. Let's tell a story on Watar. Well, today, I want you to reach over to your, I don't know, imaginary seatbelt buckle and buckle in for history, for a history story. Um, This thing keeps bubbling up, and I got to tell the story. There's no way around it, because I just got back from a pretty momentous moment in first things foundation history uh we just did a welcome aboard kp that's that dinner that you guys hear about for our newest field worker a man named alistair aka ozzy a man from england yep we just hired a brit to go work in west africa a dude giving up his uk life his beautiful uk family we we like them a lot. Peace to you guys. Way up there in the Isle of Mull. Peace to you, Mr. and Mrs. Alistair. Because your son's off to go do good work um, and get some microbes and some, some malaria, but also to offer himself. And so Ozzy's on his way to Sierra Leone. In fact, he's there right now. But this podcast isn't really about Ozzy. It's more like about what happens, I don't know, in the brains of me, those, that small collection of thing called my brain, of, of, of molecules that make up my brain. I don't know, and maybe a soul burp or two as I traveled around. Yeah. Because, I don't know, it's just, I keep hearing these conversations out there. They're very honest conversations. And the conversations I'm having keep jiving with the podcast we're doing, this old world, new world thing. So after East Africa earlier in the fall, Scotland, Appalachia, I just keep hearing these same conversations, including from the field. So here's what these many voices kept saying in a nutshell from Glasgow to Maputo to Spruce Pine to Guatemala. COVID, it seems, is one thing for the big people. And it's another thing for the little people. Yeah, it keeps happening. The phenomena of it, in my experience traveling around, is that the big people see COVID one way and the little people see it another way or put it or let's to change the vocabulary. It seems that for the self-assured, 
the people accustomed to being in control, people who like the phrase risk management and say, I don't know, graduate degree, by the way, that's me, COVID tends to be one thing. For the less mathy among us, those who are bad at calculating the future and are much more likely to embrace risk, well, for those people, COVID is a different thing. And as far as this podcast goes, I can't help but think how closely aligned the new world, old world dichotomy is to this big people, little people concept. It kept turning up again and again, right? That for the new world people, control, attack, defeat. For the old world types, the folks I kept bumping into, I don't know, I kept thinking of them as little people. COVID is to be endured. This is what I kept seeing. In Glasgow, we came upon a march against vaccine mandates. Like, I'm not kidding, we got off the train, and bam, there it was. And right away, you could hear, Andrew, what's a snicker sound? Not, not the food, but <laughs> snickers. <laughs> You heard these little laughs from holiday shopping class. The, I was one of them looking for a gift to bring back, right? The big people, the, like me, deriding the weirdos who held signs about, my children, my choice. That was one of the signs. And what's next? Like that conspiratorial tone. Which I feel stuck between. I often feel that tone within myself. But whatever I felt, I'm telling you, the crowd, you could feel the disdain in the crowd in Glasgow. As watchers, right, of the marchers, well, as they tried to make sense of it, you felt disdain from them, right? But I didn't feel, standing in the crowd watching the marchers go by, the, the anti-mandate marchers, what I didn't feel in the crowd of big people was fear. I didn't sense they were afraid the people marching were going to give them COVID. Uh, but they did seem very scared of being one of them. Yeah, there was a deep sense of the other. In Mozambique, I'll never forget the local chief explaining how the vaccines had arrived and how he had called everyone into town for a vaccine holiday. Basically, the farmer people, again, for this pod, I can't get away from the little people. I don't know. They're not little. But this is the word I want to use. The little people were being asked to come in from their family farms out in the bush to take shots for a disease that I swear to you, they didn't know they could even catch. Many Mozambicans just thought of it as a white man's disease. We see that in Sierra Leone as well. You see, the Mozambican death toll as of this recording is 1,942. That's total since the pandemic began. The population of Mozambique is 32 million people. Run the math! Do the math, Andrew. Yeah, that's not a lot of people in two years. Every person, as we know, is special. I'd like to say imbued with the very logoi of God, the seed of God. I know 
But just saying, it's 32 million people and less than 2,000 have died from it in two years. So they didn't really get why there was a vaccine holiday. And the chief was a really nice guy. But he was not a little person. He was a big person in touch with other big people. That was clear. He was leaning toward light people. And then there's Appalachian. By the way, if you don't know what light people are, think enlightenment. The, right? The rational revolution of the enlightened people in Europe circa, I don't know, 16, 1700s. And then what about Appalachia right here? Right in the United States where we have some field workers. Among things we see most often there is suspicion. And that was long before the pandemic. Suspicion of us, suspicion of the government, suspicion of vaccines. Yeah, mountain folk are just like that, really all across the globe. Same in Guatemala, mountain folks. Mountains seem to do that to you. Like you move there long enough. And I think it's because you can't see around corners. So you can't see around corners. So you're always wondering what's around that corner. And you're always sort of braced for whatever's coming, but you're a little suspicious of what's around the corner. You know what I mean? Mountains, they, I don't know, they block vistas when you're driving around down in those hollers. That's one theory. But I tell you what, if you travel down the road in Appalachia, North Carolina anyway, just a couple hours east to Durham or Raleigh, you find lots of folks with very nice college degrees possessing lots of very remarkable plans getting vaccines into the arms of those folks out there in them hills. Yeah. Yeah. That's all within the same space called North Carolina. There's definitely a divide happening. So if you go and look at these real stories, these are real stories. You keep seeing them when I travel. Or just go to Austria on the interweb. Right now there's some Good documentaries about what's going on there. Yeah, including the world's first lockdown for the unvaccinated. And a lot of people were talking about that in England. They weren't very fond of it, at least the taxi driver types. You'll find a very, very similar tenor really all around the mandate world. The world is becoming two-tiered. It already was. But the contours, right? The bright colors. Yeah, they're being filled in now. And from where I sit, as a guy trying to serve, well, the meaner sort of life, those cats, that's who we are out to help, those tears break along the lines that this podcast tries to illumine. Old world versus new. You can just see it. But it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing, this growing division. And I say all of that while reserving judgment. I really do. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. Heck, even in Manhattan just last month, I watched as folks uptown in Harlem, in the Bronx, just let me walk in. No ID check. No vaccine card query, even though that's the law. When I tried to do this in Midtown, yeah. Fail blog. ID check, vaccine check, right away. Yeah, and if you know 
New York geography, Midtown. Yeah, that's right. That's the light people. So one group thinks they can control stuff. The other group sort of thinks, well, they just endure stuff. And that brings me to a story that I want to tell today. It comes from a period we need to explore. The story I'm going to tell you is from American history, the late 1770s, when the old world in Europe was coming apart at top speeds. The cultural contours of Europe were being challenged by, well, Americans, 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 we can. Americans were blowing up old world Europe. Things like obedience to hierarchs, belief in and respect for the unseen world of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, say. The notion that children serve parents, not parents' children. The idea that individual reason was more important than collective tradition. Yeah, the old world of Europe was giving way to the new, and it was in America where much of the new world played itself out. And this story I'm about to tell you is about that reckoning. And if you listen carefully, it's about COVID. So, want to hear it? Let's do it. First, let's meet Daniel, a long-haired ponytail guy, wide-bellied from all accounts, born in 1747 in Middlesex County in western Massachusetts. He grew up a common farmer, the son of an Irish immigrant who had come to this part of the world as an indentured servant. Shays was, as they used to say in those days, and as I said earlier, a meaner sort of man. After joining the local militia during the American Revolution, fighting at Bunker Hill, Ticonderoga, Saratoga, and rising to the rank of Captain Shays, well, he was good at his job. So he was honored with a sword given to him directly by the French general Lafayette. Big deal. Dan Shays was a war hero. He left the army in 1780, not yet paid for his work. That's right, he fought for free. Returned to Massachusetts, where he fully expected to be compensated for his service. Like most men of his time, his goal was to buy land and raise his family. Dan Shays got paid. Finally, 1781, a year later, but it wasn't the kind of payment he had hoped for. Massachusetts paid him in devalued paper money, money that he could not use to pay his loans. What were his loans? Well, his wife took out loans during the war. Well, they both did, but it was, his wife was working the farm at home. His debtors, the people who loaned him money during the war, were Eastern financiers from Boston, right? And now they were collecting that debt in hard currency, not in the paper that Daniel had been paid in after the war. So their loans that they were collecting went across the various, at that time, colonies and now states. They went across to all types of common farmers who were lured out of subsistence farming into a high-demand cash crop farming. And why? Because the fledgling government called America during the war needed cash crops to feed the army and a lot of other people. And so farmers went from subsistence farming to cash crops in order to help the cause, right? Well, to do that, many times you needed more land to grow this, these kind of crops, wheat, 
rather than just a single family farm with a, a garden and a small plot. Now you need more land. So farmers took out right more loans to increase their land holdings and increase their yields and meet wartime demands. After the war, these same farmers, though, faced cash shortages. Inflation kicked in. Their paper money evaporated. In short, all around the nation, but especially in western Massachusetts, the home of the Patriots, common men and women found themselves swimming in debt, facing degraded land prices, skyrocketing foreclosures, and debtor's prison. By 1786, 80% of all Worcester, Massachusetts inmates were debtors. And all those debtors were, well, well, not all of them, but many, overwhelmingly, were Revolutionary War veterans. From the battlefield to the prison. Shays, not yet in prison, but clearly on his way, was angry in 1781. He was angry at what had become of his beloved land, Merck. I mean, the dude was ducking bullets for it. And now he was bucking for a fight. So on a clear evening in the summer of 1786, Shays made his way to the top of a bar stool at a place called Conkey's Pub in Pelham, Massachusetts. And we don't know his exact words, but they were something like, let's close down these effing foreclosure courts. These courts where everybody goes to get foreclosed on need to close themselves. So the revolution begins. This was a big deal, guys. Yeah, Shays and his men and his drinking pals and his buddies who were also facing foreclosure, well, they held conventions in western Massachusetts where they wrote up a list of grievances. Here's what they wanted, an end to property foreclosures, a moratorium on court cases concerning debtors, the abolition of property taxes, and the forgiveness of all wartime debt. The year of Jubilee. That's what they're asking for. Sam Adams, you guys know Sam Adams. The most famous patriot there is, maybe. He was the author of the Boston Tea Party and, of course, a brewer of beer. That's Sam Adams. One of the greatest defiant people in American history. Well, guess what he was when Shays was raising hell. He was now the president of the Massachusetts State Senate. And he thought Shays was cray-cray. Insane. He wrote, quote, The conventions must cease. The regulators, that's what they called Shays' men, the regulators must desist. It can never be the duty of one man to be concerned with the duties to more than one revolution. Stop. Enough. Exclamation point. Sam Adams is pissed. Adams and his Boston merchant buddies, right? The guys who ran the Massachusetts State Senate after the Revolutionary War didn't want to hear from Shays. So Shays, being a fighting man, I mean, he did get the sword from the French General Lafayette. He prepared for war. But he needed money. So he sold that sword 
and he sharpened a dagger that he kept from the Battle of Bunker Hill. You don't want to mess with Dan Shays. By the fall of 1786, Shays had mustered a militia of some 2,000 men. They all sported hemlock in their hats, a sign that they were willing to fight to the death. Their first target was the courthouse in Springfield, Massachusetts. That's right. They got their map out and went courthouse by courthouse, showed up with knives, muskets, swords, clubs. Shays managed to shut down that courthouse indefinitely. Then they rode next to Northampton and shut down the courthouse there. Then they went to Worcester. You get it, right? And to Concord. And when these guys rolled up, those judges ran. Right? All across Massachusetts, Shea sites, or as I told you, the regulators, well, they were challenging the authority of the state. And Sam Adams wouldn't give in. He fought back. He and his buddies in Massachusetts and Boston, they passed the Riot Act, a law that defined all acts of defiance as treason. He passed the suspension of habeas corpus. Oops, you can be found guilty without actually showing up in court. And he sentenced all the regulators, all of Shay's men, to death in absentia. He said, quote, Rebellion against the king can be pardoned, but the man who rebels against the republic must be hanged. Hmm, Sam Adams, drink that beer. About the same time, Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, under the Articles of Confederation, that was the law of the land in this year of rebellion, 1786, he wrote a manic letter to George Washington. Washington was retired at the time, and by all accounts, he was enjoying his, his easy chair. Here's what the letter said from Henry Knox. Remember, he's in charge of war. We've just defeated the British, and Shays is just terrorizing the countryside. He writes, quote, 12 to 15,000 men rebel against reason in Massachusetts, and they alarm every man of property in the region. He continued, I'm telling you, George, they see the weakness of the government. They feel at once their own poverty compared to the opulent. Their creed is that the property of the United States has been protected from the confiscations of Britain by the joint exertions of all men, and therefore property should be known as common to all men. What? Hey, Shay's a communist? What's a communist sound, Andrew? Put a communist sound in there. Communist sound. Well, Washington wrote back pretty quickly, actually. And he said, quote, redress the grievances of Shays and then, if necessary, shoot them. But Sam Adams would have none of it. He didn't care what Big George, the war hero, was saying. He turned instead to his friend James Bowden. If you know Maine, there's a Bowden College. That's this guy's college. At the time, he was the governor of Massachusetts, and, well, Bowdoin asked if he could raise a mercenary army under the direction of General Benjamin Lincoln. Bowdoin and Sam Adams got together their own army. And, well, with 129 wealthy landowners, investors behind them, 
they raised a mercenary army to go and kick some Daniel Shea's ass. So Lincoln, he's the general of the mercenary army, is heading out to find Shays. And, well, they found him in western Massachusetts. Shays had gotten word that there were 4,400 armed men flying no flag on the way west to kill that dude, to kill him. So he went and got some serious weaponry. How did he do that? Well, he and his men headed towards Springfield, where they planned to seize a massive federal armory and collect over 450 tons of weapons and ammunition. Yikes! Only a small federal militia, headed by a guy named William Shepard, awaited him there. Uh-oh, third force in the game. Now you got Shepard, a federale, a federal armory protector general. You've got a mercenary army marching from Boston, paid for by Sam Adams. And you got Shays. Shays, knowing Shepard was there, met him outside the armory. And he asked this question. At least it comes to us from history. Shepard, if we win the armory and we march on Boston, I have a question. Will you fire on us? Hmm. Well, guess what? Yeah, Shepard says, I will fire on you. Don't take the armory. Shays did it anyway. He commanded his men to march forward, and as they did, cannon fire ripped them apart. Four men were killed instantly. 30 more lay basically without arms and legs. And in the Shea sites, the rest of them fled into the woods, trying to regroup some 40 miles outside of Springfield. What Shays did not anticipate was that Lincoln, the mercenary army general, would pursue him into the bitter winter. But Lincoln did pursue him. And by week's end, had captured more than 150 of Shays' men. Shays himself fled to Vermont, where he, well, he waited to try to regroup. Samuel Adams, well, now in possession of Shea's rough-riding Shea sites, well, he called for the execution of all 150 captured men. Yeah, well, the spouses of all these men, most of them former right soldiers in the American army, they went to Boston, and they had a parade, and they demanded leniency. In the end, basically what happened is 138 of those guys got pardoned. Twelve others were marched to the gallows, fitted with a noose, and then, well, let go. Basically, they were trying to get them to pee their pants, and they did. In the end, only three men were executed for Shays Rebellion. Shays stayed hidden out in Vermont until his pardon, 1788, by the governor of Massachusetts. Free to return home. He did, right? Eventually collected his pension and died on a very small piece of land he did not own. The Shays' rebellion was over. So, what the heck does this story have to do about COVID? 
But if you're listening carefully, you can hear it. First, let's look at what happened in real time because of this eruption of anger from this collection of meaner sorts, from the outcasts. At the Constitutional Convention, the famed, that's the famed meeting of our founding fathers in America, which took place only four months after Shea's assault. At the Constitutional Convention, you got to realize, the rebellion, Shays' rebellion, had gotten written into the hearts of these state elites who came from all across the new colonies to write a new constitution. From Georgia to Maine, state legislators knew all about Shays. You see, Shays and his boys weren't just highlighting a New England problem, not at all. Each state had similar debt structures and similar issues with their meaner sorts. Each state feared the power of the mob. And most importantly, each state had debt to finance, and they needed the power to raise taxes. In short, each state faced the East-West dilemma, which right now in this world, circa 2021, is the North-South dilemma. The battle between the merchants of the coastal cities, Boston, New York, Charleston, and the common folk of the interior. State legislatures feared this dynamic, but few wanted to risk the mob, and fewer still were prepared to redistribute wealth in the way that Daniel Shays and his men had promised. So, at the Constitutional Convention, with all these elite American lawmakers, what did they do? What did they do as the commercial class whispered in their ear? In fact, Most of them were the commercial class. Well, they ratified the newly written United States Constitution, a document that radically centralized power and abolished the Confederacy, or what we lived under at the time, the law code known as the Articles of Confederation. The new law code, the one that came out of the Constitutional Convention held just four months after Shays, and his rowdy men had raised hell, well, that new law code created a government with bite enough to protect commercial interests. Adam Smith, you heard of him? The father of capitalism, right? The free market light person extraordinaire writing in England in 1776, he laid out at least one way to understand what was going on with this whole chaise situation. This is what Adam Smith said, quote, or he wrote this. Laws and government may be considered in this, and indeed in every case, a combination of the rich to oppress the poor, and preserve to themselves the inequality of the goods, which would otherwise be soon destroyed by the attacks of the poor, who, if not hindered by the government, would soon reduce the others to an equality with themselves, and they would do this through open violence. Whoa. Adam Smith is clear. Some people need to control some things, or the rush to equality will reduce everyone to poverty. And it'll all get done with some violence on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, Shay's Rebellion. There's just something in it. 
that I can't get away from. It's why I'm telling you the story. The government is often the means by which commercial interests maintain their advantage and power. Right? Shays and his regulators made just enough noise to scare the big people into a rush towards centralization of power. And the federal government that nurtured and protected the interests of the Boston elite. Yet, that's the Boston elite Shays aimed to destroy. Uh-oh. The elite we're talking about in Boston, guess what? They're alive and well. They've been allowed to grow since 1770, since 1786. I think they've grown into something called a corporatocracy. But here's the crazy part. They may be a global corporatocracy at this point. And this may not be a bad thing. Hear me out. This partnership between government and the merchant class may be necessary. I don't know. We can debate that. One can argue great wealth has been created because of this relationship. But I don't think one can argue that this thing, this Leviathan, this centralized serpent called the federal government and soon to be called perhaps the global government is, I don't think this is, well, I don't think you can argue that uh, massive commercial interests aren't being protected by governments. Yeah. The things that the commercial interests, the Boston devils that Shea set out to slay, the ones, right? he was willing to die in a fight against, they're alive. I don't, I don't know if they're devils, but they're alive. And it feels like it's all happening again when I walk around in Glasgow or when I walk around in Mozambique. Yeah, and this fight ain't no Western Massachusetts, I don't know, meaner sort, knife fight. These are multinational corporate powers that are now aligned with governments from China to Chile. These powers have deeply embedded interests in controlling not only markets, but the essential information they need to control mentalities. To control the human mind, so that the human mind will do the right thing and buy stuff. And here's the kicker. And this is why I did this podcast. It's probably going to get me canceled. I wonder if... This controlling neocolonial model of governance isn't on the verge of creating more than a few Daniel Shays. But I'm worried that those Daniel Shays will only create a more centralized global government, just like our story shows us. And all of this ties into the COVID narration, the COVID narrative. Right? Because somebody's going to be willing, and it's already happening, to stand up against the COVID mandates. It's going to be little people. But that's just going to embolden the commercial interests. And that division, I know people are sick from COVID. I get it all. But I don't know how you all can't see that that division does not end well for the little people. For the old world people. They might get healed from COVID. Uh, eh, probably not. But there's a new problem being born. And I think this is the unspoken reality of what we're seeing as we walk around. I don't know. Maybe it all turns up roses. Maybe the global commercial interests. Maybe they're really good for us all. Maybe Big Pharma is just what we all need. 
to live more fruitful lives? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Uh, we'll just leave it out there. So, I wonder if this helps. It's just some thoughts. Shenny's Gaggy Marjos. That means to you the victory, often said at the KP table in Georgia. That's our podcast for today. Thank you for coming along. Don't forget the concert. See you Saturday. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwartz, Daniel Paternos, and our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's this nonprofit at www.first-things.org. Go check us out. See what we do. And support us, even if you can't come to the concert. But most of all, remember, there is something in your soul that's so old that it's even better than something new. I think we should all draw on that very old thing, that very transcendent, maybe eternal thing. Peace to you. Gagi Marjos, Nakbamdis, Oro